0: I, I was fearful at first, fearful of failure, fearful of the fact that I wasn't ready or wasn't prepared. But m- one of my really close friends, who was also my mentor through that course of that first year, was, encouraged me to just do it, regardless of you know failure or not failure. Because I had been talking for a year at that point to my particular investors, my database, my people that I was reaching out to about the Florida market. And I had only been talking about the Florida market to the point where I gained the reputation of being the Tampa guy, even though I hadn't done a deal there yet. I was pitching Tampa to everybody. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the
1: show that will teach you how to build a wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Nico Salgado. Today we're digging into a first deal diary. We're talking about Nico's first multifamily deal that he acquired back in 2020. There's a C-minus class multifamily property over 190 doors. We're talking about the good, the bad, the partnership, lessons learned, and so much more. For the new multifamily investor, it's important to learn from case studies and learn from people who have gone before you. And that's what we're talking about today. A lot of great lessons in this one. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. To date, I've acquired, partnered on, or otherwise had a hand in over $250 million of commercial real estate acquisitions. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us in the future, just go to investwithtaylor.com. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Once again, our guest today is Nico Salgado. Let's go. Nico, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to get into closing deals in a competitive market like we have today. But before we do that, Can you tell us about yourself and how you got started in the multifamily investing
0: space? Hey, Taylor, yeah, thanks for having me on, man. I would be delighted to share my story and my journey. All right, so I really began my journey, we can say that I began it in 2019 with a mentorship program. The Jake and Gino community was the choice that I chose to jump into education, and it was purely based on the fact that I thought that I could exit the rat race really quickly by buying multifamily buildings. So I said, I needed to fast track that. I wanted to start buying buildings right away. And in 2019, right at the end, I joined the Jake and Gino program and started my educational process, I guess. I quickly learned that there was so much that I needed to know that I could not just do a deal right away and I I would it would have been a disaster had I done so. So I spent like a a year or so educating myself and really kind of trying to learn the ropes before I jumped into my first deal and then started in 2020 with my first deal.
1: Great. Okay. So 2020, a very unique time in history, particularly in the real estate space, very impacted by changes in the broader economy, changes in interest rates. What did it take at that time to get your first deal under contract? What did the deal look like? Tell us all about that.
0: Yeah. So that first deal was a syndication. It was a 194 unit property that I did not do on my own. I had connected with some other investors that were looking at properties with me in the Florida market. However, they were also looking in other markets in the United States, particularly in the Midwest. And they found a 194 unit deal in Columbus, Ohio. They asked me to join them and and you, you mentioned something interesting. I mean, this was a very weird time, right? So COVID just began and, and the world was shutting down, right, in 2020. And this was, we closed this deal in like November or December, rather, of 2020. So we had to, you know, do a full capital raise and all that. And this is my first go around. And at first I was very hesitant. They asked me to join the deal. And I said, no, this was in the summer, of twenty twenty, it was like August or so, and I said I can't do it. I just I'm not ready. I don't, you know, I I don't know if I can bring in any investors. I don't know what I'm doing. I just the world is falling apart. And I said no initially, but they then reached out to me again because they needed help with the capital raise. And they're also, you know, we're we're very close friends at this point. And it was in October, I believe. I said yes, and I did my own webinar. They helped me through it. You know, the team helped me through that. I did a webinar, and I ended up they. They didn't even ask me how much I could bring to the table. They wanted me on just because they liked my personality. We worked well together. They know that I am somebody that works hard. And they just gave me the GP percentage ownership in my first syndication for bringing in some investors. I ended up bringing $250,000 for my investors and it was a freaking stretch, man. It was really hard to get that done. Uh, I didn't realize how hard it was gonna be. And I got a, you know, a rude awakening once I started that journey. So
1: yeah, that first time working with investors is difficult, it's intimidating, and when you've never done a capital raise before, you really don't know how much you can bring to the table. Maybe you have some soft commitments, but at the end of the day, investors back out, maybe it's not the right time for them. So you just don't know whether you can perform, and, and that makes it really concerning. But So in that time between when you declined and when you had maybe finally had enough and said, all right, I'll, I'll come into the deal with you guys. What changed? I mean, were you out there trying to get other deals done? I mean, I would imagine that something changed in your mindset that made you more prepared to engage in that deal.
0: Yeah, I looked at it as an opportunity rather than a chore or a task. Or, or I, I was fearful at first, fearful of failure, fearful of the fact that I wasn't ready or wasn't prepared. But m- one of my really close friends, who was also my mentor through that course of that first year was encouraged me to just do it regardless of you know failure or not failure because i had been talking for a year at that point to my particular investors my database my people that i was reaching out to about the florida market and i had only been talking about the florida market to the point where i gained the reputation of being the tampa guy even though i hadn't done a deal there yet i was pitching tampa to everybody and now i was coming in with a deal from columbus i felt like it was kind of against who i what i believed in and who i was but there's always a way to spin it and, and, and turn it in your favor, right? So I, I changed it into the fact that I was co-sponsoring with, these, with this great team of people who I really believe in and they are really great operators that I, to the point where I wanted to do a deal with them. And I turned it into an opportunity to see how much I could raise, to see what the engagement would be like with my investors and to see whether or not I could actually close a deal and then learn the process of closing a deal asset managing a deal, and actually selling it. So we did sell it about 20 months after purchasing it.
1: Okay, so that's a pretty quick sale, but there was a lot of that happening throughout COVID, people buying properties, and then the market was just kind of going crazy. And you think, well, we have this opportunity to lock in a return because of market appreciation. We've only owned this thing you know, a year and a half or a little bit more. So you chose to exit. What did that look like? And as, as far as the execution of the business plan, I would imagine that there was some value add component in there. That's the typical strategy today. Were you able to get in and you know fix up units and raise rents? I mean, what did that look like as far as doing the deal in that short amount of time?
0: This was an incredible opportunity. If you t- if if you strip everything down and just look at it from like a, a higher level view, we went in at like forty three thousand a door which is incredible in cheap. Columbus, Ohio, very cheap. And it was a C-class property, C-minus, C-, right? We ended up, so we partnered with a construction crew out, based out of Miami, and this was what gave me the confidence to get this deal done, thinking that we're walking into a disaster. There are 12 years of deferred maintenance to where the, the prior owner had not touched anything or even been on site. I mean, they had, they, they had vacancy, you know, the collections issues they had uh, you know uh, systems that were falling apart but we got it at such a good price point per door that we knew that we could bring in our own construction team which we did and you know renovate as many units as possible and essentially force that appreciation although things were also appreciating as well as you had mentioned we had to force that appreciation because there was so much deferred maintenance so we had a a crew of 30 guys drive up from Miami to Ohio and live there for, I think it was four to six months as they were renovating. They were living in the units and renovating units. And we turned about 100 of the 194 units in the time that we owned it, which is freaking crazy. And I got to witness all of this. And by the time, but we had not made any distributions to investors, which we had not planned on it, but we were kind of bleeding money. So our that we went into this deal interestingly enough with cash one of the partners who was able to front the entire amount in cash and that's how we got it for such a good deal because he was able to pay cash and close within two weeks that being said he funded we ended up doing it doing it as a syndication and he funded the entire thing and he also put his own money capital in as well but he was charging a 9% interest rate. So for that, those 20 months that we owned it, or 21 months, we were paying a 9% interest rate. There was no possible way that we were going to be able to pay investors. We had told investors that by year two we could. However, we, as things go, we ran into a slew of issues with renovations. We thought that we could renovate more and faster. We thought that things were, you know, but as you're renovating, more things happen and more things fall apart. So we ended up not making any distributions and just waiting until the sale, and then finally, upon sale, so you could you could look at it as a, as a flip, right? Upon sale, everybody got paid and everybody was happy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there are a lot of reasons in here that I no longer invest in C to C minus class real estate, and a lot of what I would now consider red flags. And these are lessons that you learn as an investor sometimes the hard way. Is you think maybe we can turn units a lot faster than we can in practice. It's actually a lot harder to do that, or All of the deferred maintenance can end up being a lot more expensive than you might think. And in the C-class space, that can lead to lack of distributions. Plus, you had that 9% note, which made the deal sounds like a good bit more difficult. Do you remember the age of the property? Oh, I believe it was from the 50s. I'm not 100% sure. Wow. A bit, bit older property is going to have some deferred maintenance to it. Do you remember how low the occupancy got at any point? Because yeah, we- 100 <laughs> units out of 190, it's, you're going to get pretty low occupancy.
0: Yeah. I had heart palpitations. We were in the 60s, which is not even that terrible, but it, that's bad. And uh, yeah, we were in the 60s for a little while. And then we we leased up, man, we by the time we sold it, we were above 90%.
1: That's great. That's a big turn. And since you didn't have a bank loan, rather you had a private investor loan, you didn't have a an institution coming and knocking on your door about your occupancy and DSCR and all the other figures that a bank would want to know about, as opposed to a private investor who knows the ins and outs of the deal. They're maybe not going to be quite as concerned. So what would you say are your couple of Biggest lessons learned from this first apartment deal? I mean, you've continued to go on and do apartment deals. And I think we learn our biggest lessons from that first one. So what were your takeaways?
0: There was a few, well, a lot, but I'll I'll, I'll narrow it down a bit. Number one was our GP team was kind of too big. We had eight people on the general partnership team. Not that I've strayed away from that because I've also had a big team after that, but it makes it more challenging to get anything done because the lines of communication kind of get muddled and and people's roles and responsibilities are not necessarily very clearly defined. Then you have too many cooks in the kitchen trying to dictate what happens and when and how, and it's more difficult to get things done. And sometimes what you need is somebody, one sole person to make decisions right or wrong, good or bad make a decision, run with it, and then and then pick up the pieces along the way. So there were too many cooks in the kitchen, number one. Number two, we bit off more than we could chew because it was a giant deal. This was the biggest, you know, deal that any one of us had ever done. This was my first deal. And then the other general partners did have, you know, mid-size multifamily acquisitions that they had taken under their belt for, you know, and prior acquisitions, but nothing like 194 units and nothing with this amount of deferred maintenance. So it was really a lot more than we had anticipated. And on top of that, you mentioned C class that you wouldn't really get into. One, it was a two property portfolio and one area was kind of like D class. And we didn't learn that until, you know, even though we were all there walking the property and seeing everything, you didn't really learn it until you were in there. And then there was drug activity, gang stuff going on and, and just some weird things that happened that uh, kind of don't want to deal with again.
1: That it's a can be a tough lesson to learn, especially on that first deal. So let's talk about the exit. How was that approached? Did you sell through a, a broker? Were you approached privately? You know, walk us through that process of actually selling a deal.
0: Yeah, so we were approached privately by a number of people who saw that as an opportunity. And we ended up holding, you know, so we were appro- approached early on because we did really get it as a at a great cost basis. We were approached early on, but we held thinking that we can just continue to push this thing and and really create some serious value. And we could have. And we if this was an easier property to manage we should hold we should have held it for five years or so but it was such a challenge I mean it required so much work from the entire team that it was almost not worth it and when we were approached finally by the right team, who was very aggressive with their with their acquisition price, we just decided to say yes. So we didn't initially go through a broker, but after we were approached a number of times by this one team, we then got a broker to kind of put together the whole offering memorandum for us and list it. And But we ended up going with that same team that approached us off market.
1: Okay. Wow. So based on the sale time frame, if I'm doing the math right in my head, this is public math, so take it with a grain of salt, but it sounds like you may have wound up selling in summer of twenty twenty two. Am I doing the math? Or what was the actual sale month and year?
0: Yeah, it was like June or July. June or July is when we closed of twenty twenty two. Yep. Wow. Right as rates
1: started to tick up. Did you potentially yes. look at maybe refinancing and getting, you know, paying off that one investor? Would that have been a feasible plan, at least before rates started to Rise to the extent that they have. That was
0: back before rates have, have gone up. Would refi have been an option? It was an option. However, we all kind of wanted out of the deal at that point. Yeah, we wanted to exit and just move on. So, it, it, but you mentioned that interest rates were rising. And this is what the team that had, you know, that had we had, con- we were under contract with to sell. When r- rates began rising, they began getting a little flaky. Even though we had money hard, they put down, you know, a solid amount of money hard. They began getting flaky and it seemed like they were going to walk from the deal so we got on a call with them we had a conversation they said they needed a million dollars off because of the rates that had changed or whatever we took a hard line a shot in the dark and said no <laughs> and they said okay so we ended up closing at the same contractual price it was really incredible uh, and we were actually told that they were retraders. And since they were branded that way, perhaps, this is in my mind, I don't know what the actual fact is, but perhaps they didn't want to be branded that way anymore. And they just went for it and and still closed with us. So
1: They still went they for the retrade, though. I don't th- know if you get they out. Tried. That they cool. tried. They <laughs> tried. Okay, yeah. so let's talk about the team aspect of things. You mentioned that there were too many cooks in the kitchen, very valuable insight, but For your deals moving forward, the things that you're doing today, how do you think about forming the team or looking for the right people or making sure the right people are in the right seats? I think that's a very valuable takeaway, but what's your new process, if you will?
0: So Taylor, I'm still trying to just get deals done, right? And unfortunately, sometimes I have to, you know, sell, sell my soul to get the deal done. And, and, it doesn't always look as pretty as it is in the end and and people on facebook and social media they see people closing deals and i've closed deals too it just it looks all glamorous but in reality i have to you know give away parts of the the general partnership to help close a deal so but one thing that i do have done to your question is in the operating agreement i am the the final decision maker on on anything so it's my deal. I lock the deal up. I close the deal. I put the team together. And is it a little sloppy? It can be. But I'm the final decision maker in the end so that we cannot, you know, we're not going to just drag up the process of of decision making on and on. And from the
1: market takeaway standpoint, prior to this deal, you were big on Florida, but you did this deal in Ohio. Following the deal, have you gone back and refocused on Florida? Or have you opened up to other markets? What was your big market takeaway from the deal?
0: I stayed in Florida, so I have not left Florida. I I did not love Columbus, although I know people are very successful there and there are great deals to be had. I just did not love the challenges that we faced. Yes, not all properties are C-class or C-minus or D-class, but I just, I didn't love it. So I said, I'm not going to put the energy forth to go and dive deeper into the, the market. Okay. So the big struggles now, and I've done some investing in Florida, so
1: know some of this firsthand. The big struggles now in Florida are property taxes and more importantly, if you will, insurance. Property insurance has been very difficult lately. How are you handling that? Have you been running into those issues? Are you mitigating them? What's been the plan?
0: Yeah. Expenses are up everywhere, right? But Florida in particular, more. Insurance is crazy. I have a, i have some good connections for insurance and I have guys battle it out and and but I finally found a guy that is I'm, I'm pretty close with and he has generations in the insurance business and he knows the business inside and out that being said it's still extremely expensive at least double what i was underwriting for you know two years ago let's say a year and a half ago so now it's doubled at least right what we do i mean it's it's gonna you still have to get a return. You still have to be able to turn a profit. You still have to have some cash on cash or else it's just a risky situation. And there's no point in doing the deal so that it typically comes down to dropping other expenses, if possible, raising other income if possible and how to do that and working with people that like my man my property manager, who is willing to negotiate down his, you know, his fee as well. It's just, and then also the purchase price. The purchase price has got to drop. So have you
1: found that sellers' expectations are shifting, or how have you dealt with the need for the purchase price to drop versus sellers
0: obviously not wanting to drop their prices? So sellers were holding very tight throughout this, and, and you were seeing in other areas of the the country where some sellers were finally kind of giving in noticing that interest rates are really high realizing that the situation is not necessarily a sellers market anymore but in florida it was holding in my market in tampa it was holding steady however rents have definitely cooled off vacancies are are you know and filling units has become more challenging and notes are coming due so i have seen very recently only i'm talking a week or two at this point a lot of deals coming to market with price reductions. I first started seeing price reductions, you know, maybe six, eight months ago. Here and there, they were trickling in, not many, and I hadn't seen any prior to that. And things were getting overbid and and people were paying more than asking. But now you started seeing eight months or so ago, you started seeing some price reductions down in Florida, very few, now it is common to see price reductions because not only is it challenging, let's say we had the same buyer pool, Right, and not only is it challenging to get uh, a, a deal done at this point because banks are kind of pulling out a little bit, they're giving less leverage. Investors are, are few and far between at this point. People are kind of hesitant. That's a struggle as well. But on top of that, the buyers themselves are pulling back. So, you know, they, they just they're not as aggressive as they used to be, and it's harder to get the deal sold. So, sellers are coming to the point where they're they're feeling like they need they might need to sell. Their note might be coming due. Who knows. I actually do know a few cases of the note was coming due and, or they had not paid and they were in for, you know, forbearance and that's a, that's a problem. So that's when you need to sell. So people are not necessarily willing to take a loss yet. I haven't seen that, but I've seen at cost a couple of sales go. Interesting. Wow. That's
1: so your perspective of folks being at the point or getting to the point where they're selling because they need to, that's become more and more my impression, at least in other markets where folks that are selling today are selling because it's the time that they need to sell. Their business plan is up. Maybe their financing is up or their investors want out. Maybe they have some big tax reason that they need to get a sale done this year before the end of the year. Something driving the sale rather than we've realized our maximum value, and now it's time for us to exit and look for the next opportunity. It's not so much that. It's more, we kind of need to get out of this for another reason. That's been happening quite a
0: lot. Yeah. So a lot of people went in with bridge debt when when it wasn't necessarily a bridge product, right? People were getting high leverage, very low interest rates, but some of them had floating rate debt. And, you know, it's a killer at this point because obviously what happened interest rates went skyrocket and they are now bleeding money losing money i know some people that had to have a capital call to inject money and does, that's just to keep it the deal floating if it's a good deal and if it's not a good deal then you got to just sell it and, and cut your losses
1: yeah it's interesting times i think we are still personally my opinion is still a good time to be an investor if you know where to look if you're hooked in To the right opportunities but that is maybe a discussion for another day right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor all right nico i've got three questions i ask every guest on the show are you ready yep let's do it man great and these are three new questions all new just before the uh, turn of 2024 so first question what is your number one book recommendation
0: all right i have so many however i will give you seven habits of highly effective people Nice by Stephen R. Covey, I believe, and very
1: classic book recommended by a lot of folks. Good choice. So we had number one. Now we go to number two. Who inspires you?
0: I get, I'm going to say my partner Joseph Lee. Uh, he's my partner for the mass, for the uh, our, our meetup. I don't know where he gets the time. I don't think he sleeps, but he has done so much in such little time. And he's always got such a great attitude. It's like I'll call on him for anything and he picks up, he answers and he and he executes right away. And he's got a great attitude about everything. He's super positive. I am super inspired by Joseph Lee. And I believe he was recently granted the <clears throat> trademark for Broseph, Yosef Broseph, <laughs> if I'm right. <laughs> That's right. he will I don't know where he gets the time to do everything that he does, but yes, he's got now hes he's got Yosef, you're Broseph is his trademark. I love it. Great to have inspiring people in your corner.
1: So question number three, number three is always my favorite, and this one is no exception. Think about 80-year-old Nico. What feedback does he have for you
0: today, whether it's positive or negative, what advice would he give you? Oh, I love that question, man. It's so similar to my question that, that I ask my guests, but here we go. All right. 80 year old Nico is going to look at 43 year old Nico and say, chill out, relax. You're doing everything fine. My day to day is like panicking, like I'm not doing enough. I'm not getting this done. I don't have this deal. I'm not there yet. But if I surrender, relax, I am definitely on the right track because if I take a look just a few years ago where I was, I am eons beyond that. And when I'm 80, forget about it. I'm going to be way beyond that. So just relax, chill out, surrender to what's happening, and you're doing the right thing, Nico.
1: I love that. I love that so much. Well, Nico, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing this knowledge. If folks want to find you on the internet, where can they track you down?
0: Yeah, go to my website. It's smallaxecommunities.com. So it's www.smallaxecommunities.com. Awesome. Well, thank you once again for joining us today
1: to everybody out there. Thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.